0: Welcome to another on-the-job training tidbit. In this episode, we're going to be covering personnel and materials hoist theory. So, in order to work safely, we need to understand where we stand with uh, legislation and regulations. So, it's very clear that we need to know the difference between a hazard and a risk. So, what would be the definition of a hazard? A situation or thing that could cause harm. Therefore, what is a risk? The risk is the consequence and likelihood of that hazard causing harm. To make sure we work safely, we work under a part of the regulation called the duty of care. What would be, in its two simplest forms, what does the duty of care mean? Cause no harm to yourself and cause no harm to your others. And that can be through act, error or omission. If you are found to be working unsafely on site, what are some actions that an inspector might be able to take against you and your high-risk work licence? They can cancel your licence, they can suspend your licence and they can order retraining or reassessment. So in order to work safely, we need to be able to work to a set of regulations and procedures and specifications. Where would be three documented sources that we could track down safety information? Remember SAC, Safe Work Method Statements, Australian Standards and Codes of Practice. So employers have an obligation to ensure the safety of employees, employers and the people on a work site, on and around it. What are three ways that they can achieve that? What are three things they need to provide? Remember safe, safe, safe. Safe systems of work, safe plant and equipment and a safe work environment. This gets more involved when you've got uh, unfamiliar tasks or unfamiliar plant. What two things do they specifically need to do if asking you to undertake unfamiliar tasks? Remember SIT, supervision, instruction and training. So before starting work on a new site, what would be three people that we need to consult with? Remember SOS, Supervisors, Safety Officers, and other workers. And why do we talk to those people? To understand site-specific hazards, policies, and procedures. We need to use PPE, or whatever supplied by the employer and mandated by the SWIMS. When do we need to check that PPE? Before we start the task, if we're about to start working on a hoist on a construction site, what are three workplace hazards that we need to consider and plan for? Remember hoist, H-O-I-S-T, hoist overload, obstructions, insufficient lighting, slippery surfaces and traffic what would be some risk controls or control measures that we could put in place? Remember TAB, T-A-B, traffic control, adequate lighting and barriers and gates. If we're asked to move uh, chemicals or dangerous goods, how do we need to do this? as per this SDS, the safety data sheet. If we're about to start work on a hoist, what are five things that we need to consider and plan for that are not hazards? Remember place, permits, locations, access, communications and equipment. If we're operating a a hoist and the wind picks up and it gets really windy, what are two effects that we could have on the hoist due to strong winds? So we can dislodge the power cable from the cable guides and we also might have uh, materials uh, being blown from the hoist or instability or excessive loading on the hoist structure. If we do find that the wind has picked up and it's now above the rating of the hoist, what do we need to do? Stop work, lower the hoist to the park position, make safe and inform the supervisors on the site. So where would be two places on the hoist that I could find the maximum wind velocity rating for the hoist? Marked on the hoist in the data plate in the manual or referring to manufacturer specifications. So how can I find out what the current wind speed is so I can confirm whether we're either under or over our rating? We can use a wind meter like an ananometer or we can refer to a live weather app such as Bureau of Meteorology or Willy Weather or something like that. If we're operating a hoist at night or in darkened areas, what does the site need to provide? Adequate lighting, the hoist generally will be part of the emergency planning for the site. So who would be three people involved in planning the emergency procedures for the site that include a hoist? The supervisor, the hoist operator and usually the safety officer. If there is an emergency and they're asking people on site to be moved using the hoist, what are two things that need to be considered prior to loading the hoist in an emergency? Capacity of the hoist, emergency procedures, and emergency lowering procedures. Speaking of hoist capacity and hoist weights, what are three ways we can work out the weight of a load prior to loading the hoist? Remember Run-DMC, Delivery Docket, Marked on the Load, or Calculation? And who was responsible for working out the weights of the loads prior to loading the hoist? The hoist operator. Where would we find the hoist's rated capacity? Marked on the hoist on the data plate? In the operator's manual? Or referring to the manufacturer's specifications so when do we need to work out the load mass or the weight every time prior to loading the hoist so whenever we stick a load in the hoist we have to work out the weight first for every lift what are the three ways we can communicate with people on a work site so just remember this isn't about how do we communicate using the hoist? It's just how do we communicate with general people on site? So we have verbal, written and signage. We can also use two-way radios or hand signals. When do we need to check our communication equipment and making sure that it works properly? Before we use them, before we start the hoist task. And what are three types of communications or styles of communication that may be used when we're operating the hoists these are specific hoist communication channels so we might have bells lights or an intercom such as a floor speaker system what do we need to do if we find a defect in the communication system on the hoist Remember STR, stop, tag, report. So before we start hoist operations, we need to get a hold of the hoist logbook. What would be some things or information that we could refer to in the logbook? Defects, repairs, and service history. What do we need to do if we come across and we're doing our pre-start inspection and found the power lead to the hoist sitting in water? Remember stop, tag, report, but I'd probably throw isolate the power in there too. What do we need to check when we're looking at all the electrical cabling on the hoist? Signs of damage, that it's not sitting in water, that we have secure connections, like there's no wire hanging out at all, and that we might also look for testing and tagging. So what would be some things that when we're going over a hoist during our pre-start that would mean that it's unsafe to use? So we might look at cracks, bends or twists, missing bolts or pins, oil leaks, could be tagged out. And if we found defects, what three things do we need to do during our pre-start? Once again, STR, stop, tag, report. So if we did come across a hoist and we found that it had an out-of-service tag, when can that tag be removed? Once a competent person has deemed the hoist safe or repaired. What needs to be in place to protect the operator and people in the hoist from falling objects overhead of the hoist? Suitable overhead protection. If we were operating the hoist and we noticed that there's now strange or abnormal noises or vibrations, what do we need to do? STR, stop, tag, report. Why do we do our pre-start run in the morning? Why do we do that test lift? To make sure that the hoist is functioning and that it is safe to use. If we find that the hoist test run fails or your pre-start fails, remember, stop, tag, report, STR. Very handy. Okay, if we have a light or bell signalling system or like a floor intercom uh, speaker system, what checks do we need to conduct? So we need to make sure that it's functioning on every level and that you can have clear communication to the driving station in the hoist. So remember, check clear communication to all levels from the hoist. We have many safety devices on a hoist. One of them is the emergency lowering device. How often does that need to be tested? Manufacturer specifications. If we are going to test that emergency lowering device, what height would we leave the hoist to do so? Low as possible so that we don't hit our lower limit or in accordance with the manufacturer specifications. Let's go on to some general ops. So, what's the importance of making sure that the, uh, the uh, rack and pinion has been lubricated, that we've got enough grease on the towers? To reduce friction, How often does the personnel and materials hoist need to be serviced? Usually once a month or in accordance with men's specs. What is the function of the gate interlock switch on a personnel and materials hoist? So uh, a lot of people always get this question wrong. The purpose of the gate interlock is to do one thing alert the operator that the gate is open. Modern hoists will now actually prevent the hoist from moving if it detects that a gate's open. And the other thing that you'll see is that the red light will show in the cab. So how do you know when a hoist interlock device has been activated? There is a red light in the cab and the car won't move. Why is it essential that you use slow speed whenever carrying out an emergency lowering on that emergency lowering brake? You want to prevent free fall or activation of the emergency brake. All right, when we're talking about putting up, tying, going or taking down a hoist, who is the person that's able to do that? A licensed rigger. If you go to do your pre-start or at any time during operations, you notice that the gap between the car and the hoist has increased. What do you think has caused this? very likely that the hoist has moved away from the supporting structure so one of your tires has come loose or something's gone critically wrong what is the purpose of the travel limit devices and don't say limit travel it prevents the hoist hitting the top of the tower or the bottom of the tower who was allowed to adjust those limit switches on a personal and materials hoist an authorised and competent person? And what would be three places where we need to ensure that there is adequate fencing or meshing installed on or around the hoist? Remember any penetrations, any windows the hoist goes past and at any and all access points to the hoist. Alright, we'll just go into shutdown now. So, why is it important to correctly shut down and secure the hoist? Prevent unauthorised and unlawful use. And what are four things that we need to do or four steps that we should take when shutting down the hoist? So, we bring the hoist down to the lowest position, make sure all the gates are closed turn off the isolator switch, turn off the controls to the cab, make sure that the main gate's been locked off and secured to prevent access. Okay, that concludes the theory part of it. Let's have a quick look at the mathematics, and the calculations are fairly straightforward. What would be the formula required to work out the weight of a concrete block? length by width by height times the unit weight. So the unit weight of concrete is 2400 kilos per cubic meter. And just remember if you're remember that was per cubic meter. So if you're going to use that formula, you need to make sure that your length, width and height have been converted to meters. How do we convert how many millimeters in a meter? 1000. So if I have 300 millimeters, How many meters is that? 0.3. Okay. So then we look at actually how many of those blocks we could take in the hoist. If we've worked out that we had 100 kilos a block and we had a pallet and trolley that weighs 100 kilos and we had an operator that weighs 100 kilos, how many blocks could we take in a hoist that has a capacity of 3,000 kilos? so start with your hoist capacity of 3,000 kilos take away your derations so you need to take off your operator at 100 your pallet and trolley at 100 there so therefore you're down to 2,800 kilos and then how many blocks or 100 kilo blocks could you take so you take that new capacity of 2,800 divide it by 100 and it's pretty simple you've got 28 blocks you can take in a hoist if the answer came out to 24.3 blocks can you take 0.3 of a block well no you can't not unless you cut it so you'd have to round down to 24 blocks sorry 28 blocks all right so it's pretty straightforward when you're looking at if let's just say they gave us a different figure and said that you had to take boxes that weighed 50 kilos each once again start with your hoist capacity take off your derations of your operator and your pallet and trolley or moving device and then take that new capacity, divide it by whatever thing that you're trying to load in and that's going to get you how many boxes you can take. Um, If I had a hoist with two ton capacity, an operator of 100 kilos and a pallet and trolley with 100 kilos, that would get me to a new capacity of 1800 kilos if I had nine boxes of a hundred kilos, how many lifts would I have to make? Well, if I had eighteen hundred kilos of capacity and I had nine hundred kilos of load, I can easily take that in one lift. If I had two uh, two point one tonne of load, that would make, and I'd have to take two lifts. All right, so it's all pretty straightforward. Just remember length by width by height by twenty four hundred kilos, and remember your derations to get to your new capacities. And then if you divide your working capacity by whatever it is you're trying to put in the hoist, it will tell you how many of those things you can take. And that concludes our hoist podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Basically, if you can keep up with me on how quick I'm answering the questions, then you're right for the uh, assessment at the end of the week. If not, just keep having a listen over and over again and um, let that uh, information sink in. All right, if you've got any questions, ask your trainer. If not, thanks very much for listening and cheese